All right, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. This is our jolt to get the week started, our mystical, uh, I don't know, mystical power hour or so to, uh, to get our week centered and off to the right start. So today's topic, as I believe you all know, is called Love is Overrated. Now, reason why I say overrated is because if you trust popular media, when I say popular media, if you trust books, oh, sorry, literature, and if you trust music, and if you trust film, so then you would believe that at the, at the key, the heart to a healthy relationship is lots of love. And on some level, love is a key ingredient to relationships, but on another level, love is overrated. Hey, Mariana. Wow. Looks beautiful over there. <laughs> uh, it's the south of Chile. <laughs> wow, beautiful, beautiful. Enjoy. Um, so, love is a little overrated, and what I want to explore today is not is not part of it is going to be about human relationships, but a major piece of it is going to be vis-a-vis our relationship with Hashem, our divine relationship, because as Kabbalah teaches, there are two primary emotions that drive our spiritual activity, and that is Ahava and Yira. What are Ahava and Yira? What are these two dimensions? Ahava is love, and Yira is respect, awe, typically translated, however, as fear. Hey, Dr. Maxi, good morning. Good to see you. So Yira is typically translated as fear, and that's actually what I want to address today, this notion of fear. What is fear? And what is, well, really more importantly, what is Yira? How does it work? And all that stuff. So that's what we're going to dive in today. And what I want to do is, good morning, Odette. Good morning, good morning, Bakr Tov. So the way I want to get into this is by first presenting um, an important concept from the book of Tanya. Now, I quote, we quote Tanya very often in this class. The reason is because Tanya is the Bible of Chabad Hasidic philosophy, and one of the greatest books of spiritual, Jewish spiritual wisdom as far as a, a, a program ever created. So one of the big ideas in Tanya is that you and I have the ability to be hypocrites. We can be hypocritical, and that's not a bad thing. What do I mean by being a, hip, by, by being a hypocrite? It means that even when you're feeling lousy, you have the ability to think, say, or do the right thing. Well, I don't know why I'm saying you. Let me just say me. Even when I'm feeling lousy, I have speaking the first person, right? Hey, Norm. Good morning. So, right? So even when I feel lousy, I have the ability to think, to say, or to do the right thing. That is within the human capacity. To be a hypocrite in a good way. In a good way. In other words, Eve, right? So I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling jealous. Whatever the vice is, right? whatever that negative emotion is, I can show up like a mensch. I don't have to be obnoxious. I don't have to be angry. I don't have to shout and yell and scream. I can show up like a mensch. Why? Because I have the ability to be a hypocrite. The way, now, the Altarabba doesn't say this in these exact words in time. He doesn't say be a hypocrite, but he kind of does. He says, no matter what's going on on the inside, we have the ability to control how we show up on the outside. The inside does not necessarily have to dictate 
how we show up on the outside. They can be two different worlds. Now, obviously, the ideal would be that there is a congruency between inside and outside, that our insides are sparkling and pure, just like our outsides. But if that's not the case yet, all right, it is what it is, but let's at least show up sparkling and pure on the outside. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Good. So, here we go. Simple example. Yeah. Um, is it true that, in, uh, that we're not told you have to love someone, um, but you have to like them, respect them? Interesting. Ray's asking, is it true that love is not mandated anywhere? It never says you have to love, but to treat them like a mensch, to respect them, is a mandate. I would agree with that. I would actually agree with that. And... I would agree with that to the extent that we're going to share, you'll see, we're going to share today these ideas. Hey, Bess, good morning. Um, yeah, anywhere it's cool. Um, yes, but we're going, to get, we're going to get into that topic exactly. So again, but I, so let's lay this out step by step. So the outer is like this, that fundamentally, you and I have the ability to be a hypocrite. In other words, you feel, you feel lousy on the inside. You feel... You're not happy, right? You're not happy. Maybe you're jealous. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you're sad. Whatever it is, right? You're, and, but you can still show up like a mensch. That's good morning. Good to see you. You can still show up like a mensch. Despite what's going on on the inside, you can show up on the outside. On the outside. In other words, in the world, you can show up like a, like a, like a, good, like a good, decent human being. That is within the, the capacity of every human being. At the same time, the problem is that that causes a lot of stress. Why does it cause stress? So here we use my virtual rubber band example. Why do I say virtual rubber band? Because I don't have a rubber band in front of me. But if I did, here's what I would have do. I would lift up the rubber band, and I would show you that when you have a slack rubber band, what does it mean? You're holding one end of it, and it's just dangling. It's a slack. It's not, there's no tension applied yet. How do you create tension? Again, in my virtual, see online on Zoom, you guys don't know. I might be actually holding a rubber band that's so thin you can't even see it. I'm not, but I could. So, right, I'm holding a rubber band. How do I apply tension or stress the rubber band? What am I going to do? Ray, help me out here. What do I do? Stretch it. What's, what's the idea of stretching? It means one part, one side is here, and the other side is all the way over there. That creates stress. So what happens? The author Rebbe says, everyone can be a hypocrite. It doesn't matter how you feel inside. You might wake up in the morning, and, you might, and, and inside you're like, I have no interest in coming to a Kabbalah class. I'm not interested in davening and praying. I'm not interested in rapping. I'm not interested. That's how you feel inside. On the outside, you can show up and do it anyway. But what's the problem? The problem is if your inside feeling is over here and your outside external behavior is over here, you know what's going to happen? It's creating intense stress. And here's the question. How, can, how, long, how sustainable is that? How, how long, how many days, weeks, months or years can we exist in a state of tension where we're, where our inside, our feeling is in one place, but our behavior is in a completely different place. Now, can we radically act irrespective of our, in a good way, irrespective of our feelings? The answer is yes. That is a mainstay. That is a mainstay of the, um, a mainstay of of Hasidic doctrine and Kabbalistic doctrine. But again, the question is not, can we act like that? The question is, how long can we act like that? Because at some point, guess what happens to a rubber band? If you keep on pulling it, tell me what happens. 
it snaps, it snaps. At some point, it's going to be like, I don't, I don't like this anymore. I don't like this. I don't like how I'm showing up. I don't like being a hypocrite. This is not the true me. And at some point, it explodes. It explodes. It literally, it's like blowing up a balloon also. You keep on blowing it up. What's going to happen at some point? It's going to burst. So here is where. So I think a lot of people know the earlier chapters of Tanya, this idea that despite how you feel, you can do the right thing in thought, speech, and action, in your, the garments of the soul. You can show up and be a mensch. But I feel like, although those are the first 17 chapters of Tanya, actually 15 chapters of Tanya, there's another what, 38 chapters of Tanya, in which a lot of that is about how to move the inside to be more congruent with the outside to reduce the tension. You see, there's two ways to reduce the tension, three ways. Number one, it snaps. That's not good. Number two is, let's say this is how we feel and this is what, what we're doing, and we're pulling away from how we feel into what we're doing, which is very admirable. It's like, wow, this person can, can act like a mensch even though inside so much stuff is going on. That's actually amazing. The problem is, again, you're stretching. So there's two ways to reduce the stress. Either you let go of this side, right? Drop the good behavior and revert back to how you feel. Or you move the inside toward the outside. Reduce the stress that way. In other words, it's about changing incrementally, step by step, how we feel on the inside so that we feel more like a mensch, that we're not forcing our behavior. Everyone can white knuckle it. I've told this story many times. I think I've told this story many times. At least in my head, it's been told many times. Uh, I heard this myself from, uh, there's a Rabbi Denver, actually two Rabbi Denbergs that live in Florida. Uh, they come from Montreal. I heard this from one of the Rabbis Denberg. Is that the right way to say it? Maybe. One of the Rabbis Denberg, that when he was a kid growing up in Montreal, his, I don't know, uncle, great uncle came to visit from France. I think it was Rabbi Nissen Nemanov, who was like a, a venerated, venerable, venerated, venerated, I got that right? Venerated chassid. And they said about him that he was a bainini of Tanya. He was a bainini of Tanya, someone who in thought, speech, and action is pristine. Wow. So he, he was, a, he was, so this Rabbi Denberg, as a kid, he was old enough to know the meaning of the word bainini, but not old enough to, wait, how should I say this? But he wasn't yet old enough to be self-aware and asking the question that he was about to ask. What was the question he asked? He said, to his, I think, again, I think it was a relative, great uncle or something, or uncle. He said to him, I heard that they say about you that you're a Benini. He said, is that true? Which is a very direct question to ask a Benini. It's like, imagine, you know, someone says, hey, are you a tzaddik? It's like, well, if I were, I wouldn't tell you. Right, that sort of thing. Anyway, back to the story. So Rabbi Nemanov tells, his, tells this young, younger boy, he says like this. I don't know if I am or not, but here's, uh, but here's, here's the trick. If you want to be a Bainani, here's what you need to do. He said, look, he says, take for the next 30 seconds, can you make sure that you don't think, say, or do anything that you shouldn't do or think or say? Right, 30 seconds. Can you ensure that for 30 seconds, you're in a good place? I said, yes. I said, great. I just keep on doing that. <laughs> I just keep on doing that. 30 seconds at a time. And welcome to the world of abandonment. But again, everyone can white knuckle it. Now, I feel angry, I'm going to smile and be a mensch. But the, again, the question is not, can you do that? The question is, how sustainable is that? Long term, how sustainable is that? How long can that go for? Again, so for some people, you can go a whole lifetime like that. 
But for most people, at some point, it's going to explode. And and you know what's going to happen also? Hey, Peter. Good morning. There's going to be a lot of resentment. Do you know what I sacrificed, right, to show up like that for so long? Do you know what I gave up? You know how much self-denial I've, 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 I've undergone? And, and you know what? That, that can create a lot of resentment. And at some point, it not only snaps, but it explodes in a fire blaze of doom. Sorry, I felt like that was dramatic, right? Like it, it can like, it's, and it's negative, right? So here's the question. How do we reduce the stress? Because who wants to live in a state of stress? Not me, right? I don't think anyone here is like, oh, I want to be super stressed out today. Again, there's two ways to do it. Either you can let go of the behavior and say, you know what? I'm just going to embrace how I feel inside. When I'm angry, I'm going to shout. When I'm jealous, I'm going to, what do we do when we're jealous? Hate. Hate. There you go. I guess. Sure. Uh, You know, when I'm sad, I'm just going to not get out of bed. I'm going to embrace how I feel inside and that's it. I'll be true to myself. No hypocrisy, no stretching, no stress. This is it. I'm just going to be authentic. But you know what? I don't know if that's great. I don't know if that's a great plan. So So here's what Tanya offers. Tanya suggests the other alternative, which is to move the inside toward the outside. Again, there's two options. Either you you, 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 uh, you backslide back to how you feel, or you can incrementally move how you feel toward the better positive you that you have almost um, kind of lived into. This is what we call, it's not really this, but it's kind of this, sort of, take with all, lots of grains of lots of salt, fake it till you make it. It's kind of like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna show up as the person who I wanna be, even though I don't feel like I'm there yet, but then slowly, as a, as a part two of this plan, see, if I just do part one, that's a great start. But again, how sustainable is it? But the part two of the plan is that I'm slowly going to move closer and closer. This is really um, the remainder of Tanya. Again, I think a lot of people, we get off to a good start with Tanya or, or we're aware of like these basic ideas that we have two souls and there's conflict. But we can, despite the, the, the negative inside, we can act positive on the outside. Great. But the rest of Tanya speaks about how to move the inside, how to move our feelings, our emotions more toward a healthier space. And that's what I want to speak about today. Because the two primary emotions that we have inside, these, this is true of every human being. The primary emotions are ahava and yira. Love and, well, yira, which is going to be yira. defined today. Huh? Yira or hate? Not, definitely not hate. Uh, maybe fear, but we had a few suggestions earlier, maybe awe and maybe respect. We're going to get into this. Um, remember Aretha Franklin? Mm-hmm. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. That's what it means to me. That's right. <laughs> R-E-S-P-E-C-T. So we're going to get into love. We're going to Yava. We're going to get into Yira and talk about how we develop this, how we develop these, uh, these emotions and feelings. Hey, friend. Good morning from Vegas. Good to see you. Man, that's commitment. From Vegas? Yeah, we have some West Coasters. What do you mean? Yeah, it's 7.30-ish. Correct. Um, okay, so back to the story. So here we go. So the big idea is about developing love and yira toward the 
whatever it is, the proper behavior that we're trying to move into. So what does that look like? How does that work? And, and what is the difference between Ava and Yura? Why are they the two primary emotions? I'm asking a lot of questions. All of them will be answered as we go through this. So Ava is love. Love is, as we've discussed many times, love is not only attraction, but it's, it's feeling a closeness and a desire to get closer. Yura, by definition, is the exact opposite directional pull. Instead of, instead of becoming closer, you guys demonstrate Instead of getting closer, it's about getting further away. It's about creating distance. Okay? Ava says, hey, let's get close. Yira says, whoa, let's take a step back. Here's an example. By raise of hands, have you been to the, uh, the Grand Canyon? Anyone been to the Grand Canyon? Yes. Grand Canyon? Good. I haven't. However, my son has. So, <laughs> that counts. Here's the deal. You go to the Grand Canyon, I would imagine, I'm not speaking from experience, Imagine if you're standing, or even if you've ever uh, um, climbed, I don't know, cliffs, mountains, whatever it is, and you're standing at the edge. You don't like heights? <laughs> Did I talk about Shabbos in the heights? <laughs> yeah, I should. <laughs> don't worry, you don't have to climb anything. So here we go. Imagine you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and you look down, and it's a very precipitous drop. It's very, very, you know, it's... That's an SAT word. That is an SAT word. But here's the good news. The good news is there is a very robust um, guardrail. Guardrail. Not all the way around. Well, no, 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 no. I'm giving a scenario. Let's just say. Very robust. What do you mean not all the way around? Some areas that you could just fall down? Okay, well, we're not standing there right now. We're standing by the robust area. So there's, there's no danger of falling down in this moment. Are you feeling fear? What are you feeling? Fear would not be the right word. Because you're not going to fall. Right? You're safe. However, you might be feeling another word, which is? Confident. Yira, which is what? Co-confident. Confident. Well, also. But where I was going with this is a feeling of awe. A feeling of, right, the AWE version of awe. A feeling of greatness. A feeling of grandeur. Which is a feeling that something is bigger than you. And it's a sense of smallness of self. It's like, wow, this is really big. This is bigger than me. You see, love doesn't make you feel small. Love actually makes you feel big. Love is typically, again, a thing we've discussed many times, when a person declares their love and they say, I love you, who comes first? I. You are the third word of that sentence. <laughs> you are like the last thing that is in that sentence. I Love, all still all about me. Oh, you. Yeah, it's then we need to change that. We need you to love you I are loved by me. Yeah. Okay. You are loved by me. Yeah. That's, by I. We should maybe make a song like that. Right? They probably have. I think there are more songs with love in the title than any other word. I did some research before Shabbos. Indeed, that was the case. But here's the point. Did you realize? Yeah. What do you think? What do you think? I'm just winking it? Come on. I do my hard research. <laughs> anyway, I Google it. I know. What did you do before Google? You had to pull out the books. I don't know. Encyclopedias. So here's, here's the, the big idea. Love does not shrink self. Love magnifies self. Love magnifies my own sense of importance. I am the one who is doing the loving. I'm very important. The one who I love is very important to me because of how they make me feel. Love is, although it sounds magnanimous, although love sounds 
virtuous, although love sounds chivalrous, and it is, to a certain extent, love is also very much ego-based. Whereas, whereas, yira, which is awe or respect, is about the shrinking of self and the magnifying of the other. Where you are, in a sense, greater than me, and I stand in awe of that, of that picture, of that, uh, yeah, an actual photo, but of that being, of whatever, whether it's Grand Canyon or another person, of that being that is greater than self. Does that make sense? Sort of? Yes? No? Yeah? Okay. Fine. So the fear, see, I, I don't like, so the word fear evokes a sense of like something bad is going to happen. This is not something bad is going to happen. This is a sense of I recognize my own frailty, my own smallness in the face of something greater than self. I think so. I, it could be either. I think, I think fear is the lowest. See, if, if Yura has a spectrum, which it does, it has a spectrum. Fear is the lowest end of the spectrum. It's like, uh-oh, if I don't do this, I'll get in trouble, right? I feel like, uh-oh, I feel like, I feel, I feel vulnerable in this moment, but that's the lowest manifestation. A, a more, I would say, a more a graduated manifestation. Again, if we look at it as like a spectrum with like a needle, and as we go higher, um, as we go higher in that, in, in that spectrum, it would be less about the consequences, you see, even fear is still ego. It's like, I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. Oh, still made it about you. Unbelievable, right? I can't get out of myself. It's like, even when I sense the greatness and the smallness, it's like, oh, and the, what's going to happen to me? As opposed to awe, which is kind of like an existential, it's, it's just a sense of, of wow. wow. Like, oh my gosh, it's, it's really beholding the other. It's like, I don't know, go to the Louvre. Is that how we pronounce it? The Louvre. And you see, did I get it right? I, didn't, I got it right? Okay. You've been there. Excuse me. You've seen the Mona Lisa? He got it perfectly. Oh. If we want to be technical. <laughs> All right. We need the adverb. All right, one second. So, so um, you've been to the Louvre. Yeah. You've seen the Mona Lisa, named after you. Anyway. Um, and uh, does it evoke a sense of awe? It was okay. All right. Anybody else? Can we try anybody else that's been to? Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> there you go. The hotel. The co- oh, there we go. Oh. I cannot walk up to the hotel without get... being just overwhelmed. Correct. Okay, and it's not about you and in that moment. Fear. It's not fear. You're not afraid. It's not. It's not. A, and it's not about you. Fear makes it very much about you. Fear is again. It's all within the spectrum of Yura, but fear is very much. Uh oh. And what will that mean for me? It's like, am I going to, is it going to somehow, is there some comeuppance, you know, about this situation? Now, let me give you two, two scenarios. We'll call these the two highway scenarios. Imagine, husband is driving home from work. We'll give, we'll give a scenario. <laughs> I don't know if we need to actually act it out, but okay. All right, husband is driving home from work. And, uh, and the husband, so he's had a very long day at work. So I know I'm using a gender-based um, scenario. It doesn't, it's not, it's not, I'm going to apologize in the sense it doesn't matter who it is. This is just an example that I'm giving. Husband is driving home. He had a very long day at work, a lot of stress, a lot of, a lot of stuff. He wants to, wait, wait, what, um, hold on. Yeah, he just wants to go home. He just wants to get home and then relax. And he can't wait till he gets home. And he's going down the highway at a very quick pace. 
His wife calls. Listen to the scenario. His wife calls. And the wife, what you guys don't know is that there's a window behind you guys that acts as a mirror. So I can see when everyone looks, I'm like, oh, okay, I can also see those guys. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so he gets a call from his wife. And his wife says, did you pass exit 87 yet? And he sees exit 87 is a mile away. Oh, yeah. So, but he now, he knows why his wife was asking. Because she's going to ask if he can pull off the exit, go to the store and pick up something. And what does he want to do? He wants to get home. He does not, does not want to stop. Okay, so here's the scenario. So now, listen to this. So he, yeah, she's on the phone. There's no find my wife. He's not, she's not tracking him. Plausible deniability. He is very tempted to say, Oh, I just passed it. Or I passed it a while ago. Sorry. <laughs> we'll have to make other plans for this shopping expedition. Right. He can totally say that. No one would ever know. But instead, he does, I guess, what we could call simply the honest thing, which is to say, yes, honey. Yes, dear. Um, Sorry, or no, I have not yet passed exit 87. Now that's fear. It's up, go one second, it's upcoming. Why do you ask? And she says, oh, can you pull off the exit and can you get something? And he does it and he comes home. That is scenario number one. Scenario number one. Scenario number two. Driving down the highway, he's had a long day at work and he's stressed. And all he wants, all he wants is not to get home. All he wants is... Um, oh, very good. Fair. I was actually looking for the right example. I was looking for the right example. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I was thinking, is it, I was thinking, is it ice cream? Is it a burger? Like, what does he, what does he want? No, definitely he wants a lechaim. Right, let's just give that example. He wants a shot, a shot of whiskey. Good, fine. All he wants to do is pull off the highway exit 87 and go make a quick stop, a quick little l'chaim uh, with some buddies, and then he'll go home. Just one shot, and then he'll go home. Just one. But his wife calls him. And she says... You know, it's, things, are a little, things are a little crazy at the house right now, the kids, whatever, da 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 Can you come home right away? Oof. He had plans. He had plans. He had epic plans. <laughs> he was going to, just one, but it was a good plan. It was a good one. He had plans. And now, and now what's happening? And now what's happening is, guess what? His wife says, can you come home? So what does he say? He says, okay. And he heads straight home. Two scenarios. Scenario number one. Scenario number one, he pulls off the exit. Scenario number two, he doesn't pull off the exit. And here's the big idea. There's Ahava and there's Yira. There's love and there's respect. Love drives you to do things. Respect drives you to not do things. Again, love is a motivator 
for action. Love says, well, if you love, get off the exit, right? I love, I'm going to do. Respect says, if you love, sorry, respect says, if you respect, don't do the thing that would be lack of respect. In other words, go home, go home. So to put it succinctly, love is going out of your way and respect is getting out of the way. Love is going out of your way for the other and respect is getting, getting out of the way for the other. So driving home, the call comes in. Did you pass the exit? Can you make a stop? Did not pass the exit, I will make the stop. Act of love. If I want to make the stop, the call comes in, come home please. You come home, it's an act of respect. And again, you could, you could parse it different ways. You could think of it this way or that way. But at the core, this is the way that Kabbalah explains the difference between love and respect. Love drives action. Respect drives almost inaction or the sense of not doing something to violate that type of trust and that type of bond. And there was a third highway where he had a terrible day. His wife calls him. He says he had a terrible day. And she says, honey, stop for a drink before you come home. Ah, there you go. All right. But that's, that's the ultimate love. That's, that's something else. That, that's why I'm not married. That doesn't require, that doesn't require uh, uh, the, the stuff from him. But here's the point. In Tanya, he says that love, Ava, is at the core of the 248 positive mitzvot. In other words, what motivates a person to do a mitzvah? Love. Love of Hashem. In other words, when you love, you'll go out of your way for the other. We're living our lives. And God says, wait, I want you to wrap tefillin. Okay, I mean, I was, I was going to go right by that exit, but if you're asking me to, and I love you, I'll go out of my way for you. I'll wrap tefillin. Or I'll light Shabbat candles. Or I'll daven shachris. Or mincha. Or mayriv. Or I'll you know, eat a kosher sandwich instead of not. I will go out of my way for you, God, because of love. Love, Ava, is the shorish, is the source is the, um, the catalyst for the 248 positive commandments. In other words, very simply, if we build our love for God, I say build, if we can inspire our love of God, we will inspire more and more mitzvah action because mitzvah action is the idea of going out of our way to do something for our beloved. That's what love, that's how love shows up. If somebody says, oh, I love you, but I will do nothing for you, you got to question what kind of love that is. It's like, I love you dearly. Um, do you mind? No, I'm so sorry, I cannot. How about this? Nope. And the other, nope, can't be bothered. But you love me? Yes. Really? All right, that's not love. Love is going out of your way for the other. That's how love shows up. Love is an emotion, but it shows up as doing something for the other. Again, doing something for self and calling it love is a little weird, right? It's like, oh, I love you, therefore I treated myself to a new set of golf clubs? Huh? Really? Huh? Is that true? So you love me, therefore you got yourself golf clubs. Maybe. That's how, does, why I'm not how, does that, how does that make sense? How does that actually make sense? So again, the main idea here is 
that love is, when you love, it shows up, it manifests, it presents itself as going out of your way for the other, doing something for the other. That's love. What is respect? Again, in my example, respect is you wanted to do something for yourself. You wanted to do, treat yourself to whatever it was, but the other needs you or the other. And so therefore you're going to put yourself to the side. It's getting out of the way for the other. The 365 negative commandments of the Torah, 365 lo ta'ase, the ones, the, the do nots of Torah. There's actually more don'ts than do's. There's only 248 do's, 365 don'ts. You know why there's more don'ts than do's? Because we're human. I learned this when I was uh, in the, for the first time in the car with my son who was driving for the first time. Oy. Super stressful. Um, no, so listen to this. So, I, I, like, how many things are you telling to do versus don't do? Think about it. The ratio is way more don'ts than do's. I mean, the do is drive safely. The don't is don't stop so fast, right? Don't merge yet. And what's the first word? Don't go so fast. What's the first word we learn? No. That's what parents say to children. Maybe. No. Maybe, yeah. Right, there's more, just the way, the way it works is sometimes there's more no's than yeses, not because the no's are more important, but just because that's the way it is. Um, but again, getting back to this paradigm, the big idea here is, is that when it comes to love and respect, love, is, love motivates us to go out of our way for another. Respect motivates us to get out of the way for the other. So it's, I will get out of the way. Hey, Good morning. Who's this? This is my little girl, my little Bela. Hi, Bela. How old, are, how old is Bela? Bela, how old are you? How old is that? She's six. Oh, nice. The Very cool. The question is, how do you get cream cheese? <laughs> we, we, no, we ask for, for we asked, they brought, we asked. All you, have to, all you have to do is ask sometimes. You see that? All right, so back to the story. So love is about going out of your way for the other. Right, I'll do something that I would not ordinarily do because you want it and I love you, I'll do it. Respect is getting out of the way for you. You don't want me to stop somewhere, I won't stop. You don't want me to do this, I won't do that. So, so that is the way it works. That is the way it works. Which is more critical in a relationship? So typically we think, typically some people think that the most important element of a relationship is love. Again, that's what, that's what popular media would have us believe that love is the most important thing. Without love, what kind of relationship? And if you only can find, if you can only, if you only find someone whom you love, that's it. That's all you need, right? Like the Beatles sang, yeah. right? All you, need. all you need is love, right? Love is all you need. They even said it twice, both one way and the other way. All you need is love. Love is all you need. It's clear. It's a clear. It's, and it's you a. know that there are no extra words in the Beatles lyrics. In the Beatles lyrics, not the an fact, extra letter, the fact not that an extra word. Right. Even if you play it backwards, it's not good. Right. But if right, so here's the deal: the more you love someone, the more eternal it is, the everlasting it is. But we know that the truth of life bears out that that's not necessarily the case. A person can love someone very dearly, and the relationship may not work. Because relationships are not built on love, despite what, again, what popular culture would have us believe. That's not the foundation of a relationship. The foundation of a relationship is not love. Love is, love is, is very important. That's not the foundation. The ikra visharsha, 
As the Alter Rebbe says in, I think, chapter 35 of Tanya. I don't know if it's 35. Maybe 41. One of the, one of, one of the 53 chapters. You want me to Google it? No. The Alter Rebbe says that the foundation of serving God is yira, is respect. That is the foundation of a relationship with God. It's the foundation of a relationship with anybody. The respect. 41. Ikra Vasharsha. The source, the root, right? The foundation. The foundation, yeah, 41. The foundation of Avod, the foundation of serving God is Rashis, Avod of Ikra Vasharsha is Yira. Is Yira. It's not Ava. It's not love. It's respect. Because again, love is something that is very fickle. And love is, yes, I'll go out of the way for you, but I might also go out of the way for me. And I might go out of the way for someone else. Because love doesn't actually have boundaries, right? I can love you, and guess what? I can love someone else at the same time. Love is not, love doesn't hold me back. Love just says, do something for the other. Okay, great. But you know what? I can do something for someone else also that doesn't keep it in. Respect is what keeps it focused. Respect is, I will, I will deny myself something. I will hold myself back because I respect you, because I care about you. It's not about the love and the doing. It's about the withholding. It's about creating those boundaries. That is very important. Not just very important. That is the foundation of a healthy relationship. So now, with that in mind, I think it's very important to highlight the, this truth of, uh, of our text. And that is that you know, the, 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 um, the series that we're doing I've, ent- I've titled um, Spiritual Surrender. And it's all about understanding our relationship with God in the context of a servant-master relationship. Which, again, sounds, t- in 2024, it sounds like a weird paradigm. But in the context of divine service, really in the context of any relationship, the notion of, of, uh, of surrendering self to another really means to stand in a state of respect and in awe of them. It means to put them first. That's what it means. It may sound big, it may sound bombastic, it may sound scary, it may sound strange or bizarre, but at the core of it, what it's saying is to be in a relationship and to be in a state where your needs are not more important than theirs, but rather their needs, you've surrendered on some level that your needs to their needs and said that you come First, so therefore, even if I want to pull off the highway and make that stop to have you know some a good time, I will respect you, and I will not do that. That is respect. If you have the ability to say no to something you want, to deny self of something that would feel good, that would be a, a fun, enjoyable experience, but to do so because of your respect of the other, because of your um, appreciation for the other, that is something that is not just um, uh, you know, virtuous, but that's something that's absolutely critical to relationship. So with that in mind, let's jump inside. And what we're going to do is we're going to do some text inside. It's been a few weeks since we've read the, uh, the mimer, the discourse. So now it's time. Um, please take and pass. I'm going to pull this up on the screen as well. Chef, please take and pass as well. Thank you very much. Do I have to give Noah? Yes, everyone requires a copy. Absolutely. Um, here we go. Let's get this up on Zoom. 
Okay, we're gonna start. Um, no, no, Ray, it's a different. It's a it's a different one. Not that one. Not that one. It's a different one. It's only the copy. Um, what we're gonna do is start from forty-eight at the bottom, even though we did it last time. But I want to pick it up again. Page 48 at the bottom where it says the, the divine servants because I think a lot of what we spoke about in the intro will become clearer as we do this. So here we go. The divine servants. This metaphor about the two servants can be understood in the context of divine service. In other words, our relationship with God. The children of Israel are, are called servants because of their bodies which must, which, which must accept the Ol Malchut Shemaim, that is the yoke of heaven for divine service. We thus refer to God in our prayers as our Father, our King. Similarly, God is called the King of Israel and its Redeemer. So again, it's about this servant-master, subject-king relationship. You know, when, when you speak in terms of love, it would be two people who love each other, two lovers. When you speak about servant and master, it's not love that's being highlighted. It is this idea of awe and fear and reverence and respect. Let's continue. Yeah, reverence is going. Now this Kabbalat all, which is accepting the yoke, which is basically surrender, parallel the, parallels the simple servants, Kabbalat all, surrender of his master, to his master. Whereas primary service in the, is in the mode of a great yoke, to suffer the burden of all types of difficult labor, etc. although it is very much against his will. If you can do something that you don't want, if you can go against, if you can deny self, for the sake of the other, then you are experiencing this idea of Kabbalah Tol, which is surrender. Surrendering self for the benefit of the other, which you only do in a state of, uh, a state of respect, a state of awe. Nevertheless, let's continue page 50. That respect and awe is because of the uh, <clears throat> office, the office of servant. The person is a servant. Correct. So you're, you're now forced to speak into a position of... Correct. You know, yeah. Now, it could be, it could be that this is so forced right, that the person doesn't have a choice. Or it could be that the person has chosen to surrender to the point that they sort of don't have a choice. In other words, is it that it's externally motivated or pressured that there's no way out? Or is it that the person chooses to, to, see, to be in that space, to be in that position, as it were? And Maybe both, because if you don't choose, you're forced because God, the master of the universe, took the Jewish people as servants, so you're forced. But at the exact same time, who is the master? The master is God, the almighty, wonderful, good God. So you're, we're fortunate that the, the, the one who selected us to be his servant is this, is this amazing deity. But I would say something else. I would say a third point, which you're, you're right on both points, but I would say a third point. And the third point is, that, this, that even when, even the, the fact that we've been chosen by God, chosen by God for this service, a person can still walk away. Free choice has been granted. In other words, a person can say, but I opt out. A, but, but not legitimately. Can't really opt out. But in their own, in their own, in their own mind, and in their own behavior, a person could say, I'm out. Right. I'm not going to do this stuff. Right. So to stay in is still a choice. To be in this little choice, to say, I choose to live the life that I've been chosen for. It still requires a bahira, a choice from the person. Because at the end of the day, we are we, human beings, we are granted free choice without a question. 
But you're right. You're right on what you're saying. But there's still a free choice that exists. What I think is also very important, um, going back to the Sinai example, the Sinai reference that you, that you mentioned, and I do want to harp on that for a quick sec. And that is that when it comes to Sinai, we typically think that the Exodus, the message of the Exodus was slate. The God says, I don't, want you to be, I don't want you to be a slave. That's not exactly what God said. God said, don't be a slave to human beings. <laughs> right? <laughs> don't be a slave to him. You're my slaves. Now, that sounds horrible. Oh, my God. God only took us out so that he could have us as slaves. Yeah, but that's a different type of relationship. That's a different type. Servants. Yeah, I know slave is not a good term. But... I, right, I wasn't being that specific with my wording. But the point is, you're not serving the man. You're serving God, and that's a different, different thing altogether. That's not a negative service. The message of Exodus is not that servitude is fundamentally evil. It's that it depends who you're serving. Notice, very importantly, that when Moses comes to Pharaoh, he doesn't say, Pharaoh, you are in violation of our human rights you're in violation of our freedom. You're in violation of, he doesn't say that. He says, see, everyone quotes only half of what Moses says to Pharaoh. Famously, what does Moses say? Let my people go. But what's the next half of the sentence? Let my people go so that they can serve me. We don't say it. No one ever says that. I mean, Moses said that. But no one in repeating Moses ever says that. It's always, let my people go, as if Moses was this champion of human rights and freedom, saying, slavery, servitude is wrong, it's bad. The human condition needs to be free without any authority, without any type of, 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 of higher power. Right? Be free, that is the natural state of a human being. You must be free. That's not what Moshe said. That's not what he said. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people so set. He didn't even say that. Let my people is not even Moses speaking the first person. He says, I'm quoting God. So says the God of Israel. Let my people go. The M is a capital M. Let my people go so that they may serve me on the mountain. That is the full statement. We cut it in half like, oh, Moses was all about human rights. He was all about religious <laughs> um, destiny. It was about God is saying, you know what Moses was really telling Pharaoh? We don't have time for you and your pyramid schemes. We don't, we don't have time to like, we don't have time to like to run around you and your Meshagasin. How do you translate Meshagasin? Nonsense. Nonsense. You should have enjoyed the laugh on the first joke. You could have stretched. I, all the edits after the class. You'll give me a full, a full list. So, um, so, so Moses says, we don't have time for your nonsense, Pharaoh. We don't have time. The nonsense, we don't have time for it. We have way more important things, i.e. serving God. That's our destiny. You want me to get caught up in, in the bricks, in a quota of the bricks? How many bricks am I making and building today? You want me to be stuck in that mind frame? Right? How much shekels I'm accumulating on this day? That's what, that's what my head should be wrapped around the rat race? That's it? That's the entirety of life? Pharaoh, says Moses. God says, let my people go so that they may serve me. They have a higher calling. They have a way higher calling. They have a, a date with divine destiny on Mount Sinai. 
And that is where we need to be. And so again, just circling back to the point that David mentioned, the big idea here is that servitude, which is born of Yira, by the way, that's the second paragraph of 50, which we'll talk about in a second. That Yira, that servitude, right? It, that, that is not a sense of, oh, cool, let's, this is going to be great. This is going to be so much fun. Let's serve God. This is a sense of obligation. The sense of this is my destiny. This is what I'm called upon to do. This is my calling. doesn't mean it's miserable, but it means that I, I recognize that this is something greater than self. And anytime we realize that it's greater than self, that experience is called yira, which is awe, respect, reverence, maybe fear, whatever you want to call it, but that's yira, that's not ava. Ava is, I'm so excited, I can't wait. When do we start? You know what? I have so many ideas about how we should do this, and this is like... Ava is love, is you, your ego is bubbling all over the place. It's spilling all over the place. I think we should do this. I think we should do that. I'm super excited. Ava, you, we know what Ava looks like. Ava shows up in a certain way. Yira is, I recognize that I'm being called upon. I'm being, you know, I was, I was called, I was drafted into the service, as it were. Now let's do the second paragraph on page 50. Nevertheless, those, although it is a surrender, it becomes like second nature to him because of the yoke of servitude that he accepts upon himself out of his, look at this, fear and trepidation before his master. Now that sounds like literal fear and trepidation. Okay? Um, and maybe with some servants, with some masters, human beings, maybe that's the case. But again, in our, in our relationship with God, that wouldn't be the healthiest scenario. But again, it's fear. Is, could be also a mistranslation. Yirat upachad ha'adon. Is that fear and trepidation? Maybe. Or maybe it's a reverence and awe. Maybe that's a better translation. Okay. Either way, the English is not always perfect. Doing the work of his master becomes his entire being. He does not exist for himself at all. Again, fear, sorry, yira is about not going out of your way, but getting out of the way. It's about getting out of the way for something greater than self. Now let's continue. All of that was the old stuff. Now let's get into some new stuff. Oved Elohim. Here we go. And so it is with any Kabbalat O Malchot Shemaim. That's a long, that's a lot of Hebrew words not translated. I honestly don't know why they decided to not translate a section over here, but here we are. And so it is. I didn't. Um, well, the simple servant. The simple servant. I don't think I. No, I don't think I translated this. Take well, huh, I wouldn't mind. No, but now I point that out a flaw, so I'm not. Um, <laughs> I didn't translate this one. I might have been involved in the production somehow. I didn't translate this. Yeah, yeah. This was this was my uh, project. Oh, the whole the whole thing. Back in the day. Okay, and so it is with any Kabbalat O Machot Shemaim, born of fear of God. <clears throat> Kabbalat O Machot Shemaim is accepting, surrendering to God, which is born out of Yira. Again, fear of God, I'm just going to say Yira. That, honestly, they should have translated Kabbalat O Machot Shemaim, that Hebrew. They should have translated it as surrender. And fear, they should have translated as awe or respect or reverence. A person who possesses such surrender would be called an Oved Elohim. Listen to this. A servant of Elohim. Oved Elohim is a servant of Elohim. It doesn't say Oved Hashem. Or Oved have we know there's famously there's two primary names of God in Scripture. There's Hashem, 
or Yudke Vavke, the four-letter name of God. And then there's Elohim. When we talk about the servant of God, we don't say Oved Hashem. We say Oved Elohim. Why? Look what he says. For Elohim is the divine name that connotes rulership and dominion. And the Oved Elohim accepts upon himself the yoke of the divine dominion and sovereignty out of the fear and trepidation of his soul. Again, I would have translated this differently, but that's how we have it here. But no, every time you see fear and trepidation, it's a translation of the word Yira, which again, in my, in my uh, conception, is more of about awe and respect. But here's the big idea. The word Elohim connotes the, um, the dominion of God. It's the powerful force, the raw power of God, which generates a sense of awe. Okay, here's, here's what this means. Elohim, remember I gave the example before about the Grand Canyon. You're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You're not afraid of falling. You're not afraid of it swallowing you up and killing you. You're not afraid of your life. What you are is just in awe of its magnitude. Its magnitude is greater than yourself. It is way greater than you. So it's, it is huge. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. It's awe-inspiring. And then there's little me who's standing in front of it. Okay. Elohim is the divine name that connotes God's greatness, God's majesty, God's grandness. In fact, in the opening verse of the Torah, it says, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created. Why not Hashem? Why doesn't it say Bereshit bara Hashem? You gave up the four-letter name of God. Why Elohim? Elohim is the divine name that is at the source of all the grandness that we see here. All of the uh, diversity, not only physical, but the fact that there's so much of it. Diversity. I, when, I, when I say diversity, I mean, um, what's the better word? Um, plurality. plurality. Plurality, but it's just the sheer number of things. Again, the Grand Canyon is amazing because it's not just like a little crater. We've all stepped in a puddle, right? As a puddle, it's like, oh, the earth goes down a little bit. Great. That doesn't inspire awe. That's not like, oh my gosh, a puddle. I mean, unless you're afraid of puddle. puddles. That's something, I'm sure that's something. But like, uh, well, listen, we're not, uh, we're not trying to induce any new, any new things. But here's the thing. You have a puddle, right? It's a little bit of a thing. The Grand Canyon is, so, is, is awe-inspiring because it's so grand. Not just the canyon, it's the Grand Canyon. When you think of Hashem, vis-a-vis Elohim, in other words, in the context of Elohim, that God is not just God. God is the, grand, is the creator of this grand thing called life, grand existence. There's so much. It's so big. It's so, and it's not just earth. It's also heaven, i.e. the planets, right? The, someone told me yesterday, and somebody had told me this before, that there's a, um, an eclipse coming up. You guys hear about this? A total, did you tell me this? Somebody told me this. A total, total eclipse of, of the heart, sun. right, of the sun. Total eclipse, and if, you, if you're in a certain, if certain areas along the path of this, it gets fully dark like it's at night. It's coming up? It's coming, it's coming up in a few months, I think. And I don't believe, well, I, mm, I don't believe I have. Not full, not total, not total. You have to, I guess you have to travel to where it's, you know, yeah. you get different percentages, but there are places where it's like 100%. And I heard, somebody told me yesterday in Shul, somebody said that um, when you're there, it's the weirdest thing because everything grows quiet. Like the birds stop singing, yeah. the trees stop rustling. Like it's almost like it's dead silent for like two minutes and then kind of things 
pick up again. It's the weirdest thing, but it's amazing. Why am I saying this? Because we think about the, the, um, the awesomeness of existence, of the universe, of the galaxy, of the planets. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's jaw-dropping. I know I shared this with you, I think last week. Or no, I wish I shared this in the Wednesday night class or the Wednesday day class. Both the same class, but two different times. I shared about the Apollo 8 mission. There were three astronauts that for the first time in human history, they orbited the moon in a spacecraft. It was the first manned spacecraft to orbit the moon. And I heard a podcast interviewing, I think his name was Frank Borman. I think that was his name. What the astronaut, one of the astronauts in Apollo 8. And he said that they went on this mission. They went 250,000 miles away from home to see this planet, see, sorry, to see the moon. And they get to the moon, and it's ugly. It's gray craters. It's actually physically ugly. It's not nice. It doesn't look pretty. And then they, orb, they circled around, and as they came back around, they saw the earth, and it, it was right. Then the perspective was, it was rising. They took a picture. They were not told to take pictures of the earth. They were commissioned to take pictures of the moon. But they took a picture. They could not hold themselves back. They even joked about it. Like it's called Earthrise. Yeah, it's a famous picture. You see the Earth rising. It's blue, and it was gorgeous, marble blue and white. A planet where all of life that we know, all of activity that's ever been known, at least to us, has happened. Zero life on the moon. They went to the moon, garnished. No man on the moon. No cheat. Nothing. Garnished. Nothing. Zilch. Ugliness. Barrenness. Death. I don't know death. That's too far. But no life, at least. And then they, and then they, again, they, they looped around. There was the earth. They took a picture. Earthrise. It's gorgeous. In fact, as a bonus, after we, we close out, if you want to stay, I'll play a, a two-minute clip from an interview from the podcast that I heard. I, I'll pull it up very quickly, and I'll play it for you, and you'll hear the astronaut talk about the experience, and you'll also hear the original audio from, from when they first saw the earth. They were, they were just awestruck. You can hear it. They were like, oh my God. They say, literally say, oh my God, when they see the earth. They literally say that. They're, 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 they like gasp because of the beauty. Awe. This is like the Grand Canyon on steroids. This is the name Elohim. Elohim creates all of this. And that's grand. And that evokes awe. Oved Elohim. The Oved is the one who surrenders, the servant. The servant is the one who surrenders and serves Elohim. Elohim being the one, the grand designer of all of this majesty. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Everything works perfectly. Again, in my conversation yesterday about this total eclipse, someone pointed out that the exact play, the exact positioning and size of the sun and the moon and, and earth is such that there can be a total eclipse, no other planet can experience a total eclipse of the sun. There's no other planet. It's about the precise size, the precise angles that it creates a total eclipse. There's no other place in the entire galaxy that has a full and to- can have a full and total eclipse of the sun. What does that mean? I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. I mean, we can figure out. If we wanted to play Kabbalist, we can figure it out. Shemesh, Levana, sun, moon, what does it mean? We could, we could try to speculate, but here's what I know. On a basic level, pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable. And that 
can put us meditating on this, and I'm, I'm trying to do a quasi-meditation here, or at least a contemplation practice. When we think about this, think about how beautiful the world is on a physical level. Go to the Grand Canyon. Go to the French or Swiss Alps. Your, your choice. Go to Cape Town, South Africa. Go to places, go to Hawaii. Go to places that are, go to South America. Go to places, I'll keep on going, but I'll stop. Go to places that are gorgeous. Dunwoody. Go to Dunwoody. And you will be amazed. You'll be amazed. You'll be awestruck. You will feel like you are standing in the presence of majestic beauty that is only at the hands of God. You want to do something else? Do something else. Think about how the human being, human body works. <coughs> Think about it. how health, how life is the product of, of a combination of myriad of systems that work together in perfect harmony to create breath, to create life, to create oxygen, to create blood flow, to create muscle movement, how everything is incredibly perfect and, and, and amazing. I was, I was walking with my son, one of my sons home from Shul Friday night, and I was telling, I don't know how it came up, I forget the context now, but I was talking about walking. And how, you know, when, when you learn how to walk, when you first learn how to walk as a little kid, so it's very, um, very intentional. All right, I'm going to do this. That's it. We're doing this. So how do you learn? How do you learn? Visually, how do you learn how to walk? Like the child is, oh, there was a kid over, a little kid over at our house yesterday. So still crawling, but like able to like pull themselves up, pull herself up on something and stand up, super wobbly. It almost looks like they stopped to get the l'chaim, right? Super wobbly. That's how Norman I walk. Super wobbly, okay. So full circle. So super wobbly and then like falls down. She can't stand up. But then like what, what happens then eventually? Like walk. I don't even know if I can imitate it. Like what's, like the walking is like super, I don't know, it's been a while actually. Moonwalk. It's like it's moonwalk. Oh, moonwalk was cool. I can't do the moonwalk. Um, anyway, the point is that the steps are, and, and the child has to concentrate and figure it out. And there's a lot of energy, a lot of, it's very tense. And then I, I turned to my son and I'm like, Shia, when was the last time you thought about walking? We don't think about walking. It's so second nature. And if you thought about walking, you might actually get a little, a little like disoriented, right? Think too much about it. The Friedrich Rebbe once said, previous Rebbe once said, that the body is in its healthiest state when you don't think about it. In other words, if you feel your hand, it usually means there's something wrong. <laughs> you don't have to feel anything. That doesn't sound right, but you know what I mean, right? If you feel your leg, it usually means, if you feel your toe, it means you stubbed it or something. You don't have to feel anything. You feel your tooth, good God, that is not a good thing. I look at you guys. <laughs> Our dentist, right? Look, I mean, you don't want to feel, you don't want to feel your teeth. You feel, if you're, if you're eating a bagel and you're like, oh, my tooth. It's not, <laughs> not a good sign. That is not a good sign. Man, that's not a good sign. Right, so health is when you don't feel it. But there's beauty in noticing things. There's beauty in noticing how everything works together in perfect synchronicity. I mean, think about like, on a, again, we can think about it on a cosmological level. I don't know if that's the right word. Maybe it is. Like on the, you know, uh, uh, um, the planets and space and everything. 
You can think about it on planet Earth. You can think about it within the human being. Think about DNA. And how, how many lines of code are there, as it were, in DNA? How many different... And one thing, one, one character, or whatever it is, one part that's not in the right place, or the wrong code, and God forbid, it's a, it's a problem. But this all comes from Elohim. Oh, all, thanks for bringing me back. Good. All of this is Elohim. So listen, there's only one God, but the names evoke different realities, the characteristics. The characteristic of Elohim is all of this. All of this, I, I don't know of a, of a better word, maybe than the symphony of amazingness that exists within us, around us, and it's so much of it. It's not just a canyon, a puddle. It's a grand canyon. It's grand. It's, it's the grandest of grand. You want to look up the telescope. You want to look down inside. You want to go into the ocean. Knock yourself out wherever you look. It's amazing. Literally, it's amazing. Now, getting back to this. Hashem evokes how God is beyond the art that he created. In other words, if you think about um, uh, who, who painted um, Mona Lisa, let's just be consistent. Mona Lisa was Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci. Who was Jewish? Was he Jewish? There's rumor Leonardo Da Vinci, I'm, I'm, I, I believe, studied Kabbalah. Yeah, I think so. I could be wrong. The writings that he was he did, right? Jewish. I think so. He lived in a Jewish home, so he was raised in Jewish home. Okay. What about the Jewish home? He was raised in a Jewish home. Okay, this is very interesting. I believe that there's something about something about Kabbalah there as well. He was into math? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was he? Absolutely. Okay, so then all of the, yeah, those guys were all into like numbers and Kabbalah. It was all connected. Okay, so back, back here. So Leonardo da Vinci. Where was I going? Oh, yeah. So he, he, paint, he created the Mona Lisa. And he did all other works. Prolific artist and creator. Great. But he's also beyond the art that he created. There's also reality beyond that that he transcends. It's not just, he doesn't just exist within his art. He exists outside of his art as well. The name Hashem or Havaya, Yudke Vavke, the four-letter name of God, is as God is also outside of the work. He's not limited. So, for example... Our sages say that Yurke Vavke, uh, the four-letter name of God, stands for three words. Haya, Hoveh, Past, present, and future. In other words, God is beyond time and space. So he created a world in which time and space are the very fabric of existence. You can't get out of time and space yet. Right? We're stuck in time and space. If you're here, you're not there. If you're now, you're not then. That's just the way it is. Time and space are rock solid in our realities. Um, God is beyond that because he's beyond the creation. He's beyond the art. But if we're trying to be wowed by God, I mean, I guess you could be wowed by the fact that he's even beyond the wow, but the direct way is the meditation on, look at this. This is all amazing. And it's all a product of Elohim. Hashem, but Elohim. So let's get back inside. Let's do this paragraph and a few more very quickly. So Elohim, uh, this is the second sentence in the Oved Elohim section. For Elohim is the divine name that connotes rulership and dominion. And the Oved Elohim accepts upon himself the yoke of divine dominion and sovereignty out of, on reverence, there you go, I just modified it, of his soul. This drives him to subjugate or surrender his entire physical body to be literally like an ox to its yoke. This means that he forces himself and his human strength to do what is contrary to his nature and his material desire, namely to go about only with the yoke of Torah mitzvot all day. In other words, this person would otherwise love to get off the exit and go for a drink. 
but doesn't. Comes home. And at home, does the things he needs to do. Why? Because he surrendered. This is what he has to do. See you. Nice to meet you. Right. This is what, this is what he has to do. This is what, it's, it's his calling. It's his responsibility. Maybe responsibility is a good word for this. Yeah, responsibility. Yeah. Well, I would rather uh, go to the beach. I have responsibility. I got to do this. I can't go to the beach. And even though, let's continue. <clears throat> and even though this is against his nature, since he does not desire the yoke of Torah nor any other yoke. <laughs> look at that. It's not only Torah he doesn't want. He doesn't want any yoke. <laughs> I, I would no rather. No, well, I would rather. Yeah, also, but I would rather just not have anything to do. Right? Wouldn't it be great to not have any responsibilities? Wouldn't have to go to work. Wouldn't have to show up anywhere. Wouldn't have to like go out and, and, and it would be great. Nothing. I mean, I don't know if it would be great, but it sounds like it might. It's could. not so great. It's probably not great. So, but you know, that's what he wants. Now, who doesn't want that? You ask a kid, what would you rather do? Go to school or not go to school today? I think most kids would say not go to school, right? Is that better for them? No, right? But that's the nature. Okay, let's continue. Nevertheless, uh, sorry, since he does not desire the yoke of Torah, but rather to be entirely free. Nevertheless, he accepts upon himself the yoke of Torah and mitzvot to toil in its performance all day. He does so not because he finds it in it any benefit to himself, nor because it's good for him since he perceives the divine light that it contains. No, in other words, there's no self-benefit here. He's not doing it because he appreciates it, because he loves it. It's so good. It feels so great. You know, it's so special. <laughs> It's not why he does it. Nor does he do so with the intent to cause pleasure on high. He doesn't even do it for God. Well, he doesn't do it to cause pleasure for God, since such considerations are entirely beyond him. He's not, he's not so sophisticated. Rather, he is driven only by the Kabbalat Omach HaShemayim, which is surrender. This forces him to fulfill that which is the divine will and desire, and he cannot be free to go about idly, since the Master's yoke, the master of all does not allow him to be idle from whatever task it may be and forces him, as it were, I would put that in quotes, to do that which is the divine will. All right. Um, let's just do... Yeah, we're going to do one quick sentence. It's just three paragraphs. It'll just take another 60 seconds. And just as with a physical servant, this is page now, page 52. And just as with a physical servant, true servitude means that he is never idle. He's always serving his master and doing something that is connected to his master. So it is in the spiritual realm. The Omachot Shemayim, the surrender to God that is upon him, does not allow him to go about idly. It forces him, again, as it were, to do his service constantly. And although it is a yoke for him and he does not truly desire it, the Omachot Shemayim that is upon him forces him to do so and gives him the sense that it cannot be any other way, God forbid. This is what it is, and I got to do it. Also at night, he will not rest with sleep. Look at this. But rather will awake from his sleep and engage in Torah study or songs and praise of God by reciting psalms and the like. And, and even the well, and even while sleeping, the Oman Chachemayim is upon him, causing him to ensure that his sleep should be proper and that the way he lays down to sleep accords with Jewish law, so it should not create a stumbling block, God forbid, etc. He also wakes himself at the necessary time, whether it is for actual protection and precaution or in order to do his work. In other words, Sugazunt, his sense of responsibility, and that's probably going to be the word that we end with today. His sense of responsibility that I don't exist for my own self, my own freedom. I don't exist as a human being just to do whatever I want. I'm here. I was put here. I was created. And I have a task. I have responsibility. That responsibility is so, is so deeply embedded within him that it affects the way he sleeps. 
he can't just sleep with abandon and wake up whenever and whatever. He feels like he's got to go to sleep the right way like a mensch. You know, with Shema, Kriyashma, and the proper intention. He wakes up like a mensch with a Modani, right? He makes sure that he does the right things, says the right prayers. He's on the straight and narrow. He doesn't do so out of love. He doesn't do so out of um, a sense of, you know, uh, uh, wow, God wants me to do this, and it's going to be amazing, it's going to be great. There's no hype here. It's a sense of surrender. There's a sense of humility. There's a sense of obligation. It's like life. We have obligations in life. Now, does this sound like a miserable existence? I don't know. Does it? I think it sounds like life. It sounds like life, a life, uh, uh, an honorable life, where we recognize that life is not simply about having more and more pleasure, but it's about doing the right thing. And for this person, doing the right thing is very clearly about doing what is divinely asked of him or her. And so... Um, as we kind of wrap up and wind up today, I just want to, get, I just want to come full circle and, and point out that there is a very big difference between love and respect or love and awe or love and surrender or love and, 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 uh, and, and responsibility. Love is about feeling good. It's about, I like doing this. I'm excited about doing this. The ego is very prominent when it comes to love. And because of that, it can lead us in a negative path, ultimately. I love doing this mitzvah today, but tomorrow I love doing something else. If I'm pursuing my love, that can go in any other way. It's the same thing about a relationship. I love you so dearly. Let's get married. I love you. But again, love doesn't have any natural limits. Well, what happens if I love someone else? Right? What happens if I love something else? Well, I love you. I love this. But it's all about me anyway. So that I changed, and there, there it goes. Whereas a sense of responsibility, a sense of commitment, a sense of surrender, a sense of obligation, a sense of awe, a sense of respect is completely different. It's not about me at all. It's about recognizing you and recognizing what you want, but more importantly, what you need. And for the person that's in this relationship, it means to recognize that it's not about how I feel, but it's about what I must do. Is that miserable? I don't know. I think it's actually very, um, very noble. It's noble to put something else ahead of self. It's noble to put someone else ahead of self. That's noble. It's very easy to say I'm at the center of the universe. It's harder to say something is greater than me. That sense of surrender is, very, is, is a very special thing to do. And so spiritually, it's the same thing. Spiritually, we're, we're speaking about a person who recognizes that what they want is not the totality of existence that what they deem to be good, which is personal freedom, is not the end all and be all. But it's rather about surrendering to, for lack of a better term, to a higher authority. Like we always say, like Hebrew National, we answer to a higher authority. It's about a person saying, I answer ultimately to a higher authority. And therefore, as I go about my day, as I go about my evening, I'm thinking and I'm conscious and I'm aware of something greater than self. And that keeps me in a space that is on the straight and narrow. And so yes, sometimes I won't get off the exit to do something that I want to do. Because out of my commitment, I'll keep on going to the destination that I have to get to. It's not easy, but it is the art of surrender. Thank you very much for joining me today for Kabbalah Cafe. Hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, again, theme of this week, homework for this week, find a mitzvah that maybe you haven't always been excited about, 
and do it. Do it for the cause. Do it not because it's super exciting. Do it because it's our responsibility to do. And in our relationships, let's show up in a way of responsibility, in a way of surrender. To one, one person, one time, one thing, obviously in a healthy way. Show up and say, it's not about me, it's about what I'm, what I'm called for, what I'm needed for. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I just I feel like I ended, but I want to end again by adding one more piece. Okay. There's a chassid, thank you. There's a chassid who came to the Alter Rebbe, and he, was, you know, he wanted a bracha for all the things that he needed. He needed health, he needed money, he needed this, happy. He needed all these things. The author ever heard him, again, the author of Tanya, he heard him and he said, I've heard for the last few minutes everything that you need, but I have a question for you. Have you thought about, have you thought about what you are needed for? And that totally changed this man's life. It's not to say we can't have needs. Needs are human. You're human, you have needs. I'm human, I have needs. But sometimes, at least for a little bit, we should think about not what we need, but what we are needed for. And that is really the key to surrender the key to this idea of being an Oved Elohim, serving God, is not is about asking not what our country can do for us, but what we can do for our country. JFK got that from the Alta Rebbe. Straight up, he got it. Well, I don't know if it was a direct, a direct line. Maybe it was from the Rebbe. Maybe it was like uh, modified down. It's such a timeless statement. It's like, oh my gosh, it's great. But by the way, we... We need to, human beings need to be reminded of that. Because I'll tell you this, you give a human being the tr- pure freedom, which is do whatever you want. What does that look like? My God, that does not always end well. That is, that can end up being so, not only destructive, self-destructive. We know what that looks like. God created human beings. God created, God is the manufacturer. God says, a healthy human being has a healthy compass that you are surrendered to, right? It's like someone once asked uh, the captain of a, of a yacht, right? What's the key to being a sailor? It says to, 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 uh, to enjoy the freedom of the high seas, you have to be a slave to the compass. That, and that's maybe the truest thing of life. You want to enjoy real freedom? Yeah, sure, it's about having direction, but having something that is that you surrender to. Because otherwise, I mean, what was that Lord of the Flies? That was that, right? Put a bunch of people on an island, kids on an island, go at it. Oh my God. Yeah, Give that was any, Lord of the Flies. That was Lord of the Flies. I mean, that's, it's not always healthy. I would say it's never healthy. But anyway, this is, this is Judaism. This is... Yeah, for sure. The machine created at the beginning the world where everybody was happy and doing whatever they want to do. Mm. And the program exploded. And they f- to go back. I forgot that detail. A world with misery and with human struggles, so it sustained itself. I forgot that, right? The Matrix, when they were creating the simulation to keep people, you know, plugged into this, you know, artificial thing to give it power from their brains, they created a perfect world. People weren't buying it. Nah, perfect, overrated. It's not about, per- but really it's about the idea that, that, that pure freedom is actually dangerous. I mean, take a teenager, give them an unlimited bank account, right? Give them a Ferrari, give them a mansion, and see what happens. See what happens. Guaranteed, the vast majority of those people will end up doing 
things that are not great, <laughs> that are self-destructive. Not only damaging to others, but self-destructive. Why? Why, why can't people just be? Because we need higher, a higher compass. And so what I'm suggesting today is this idea to be, to be a, a simple servant, to be surrendered to God. That is the Ovid Elohim. And that's born primarily of the emotion or the feeling of awe, reverence, respect to God Almighty, which is born, of course, of this meditation of the greatness of God, the greatness of the universe, the greatness of, of life itself and how majestic it is, which keeps us in a state of awe. Thank you very much. Now this time for sure. Thank you very much for joining me for... Uh, Kabbalah Cafe, Shavua Tov, and we'll see you all soon. Don't forget, if you're interested in Shabbat in the Heights, tunnel tours, I'm kidding, Shabbat in the Heights, or not kidding, or not at all kidding, Shabbat in the Heights, join me in May. This is going to be a weekend to remember forever. Uh, Shabbaton in Crown Heights, Shabbat in the Heights, my friends. All right, contact me for more information. Pleasure, pleasure. Good to see you guys. Shavuot Tov to everybody. Shavuot Tov, Natan, Dr. Maxi, Frank from California. Great to see you again. Donna, Larry, Natan, Deborah. Great to see you. Yaakov, pleasure. Yaakov, Eva, Fran. It's amazing to see you all. Shavuot Tov, guys. Pleasure. Take care. Lots of blessings and good health. See you guys. Are you going to pull up that? Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes.